Okay, so welcome everyone. How many folks are uh, new to CIMC or to, okay. How many people are new to uh, insight meditation? Relatively new. Okay, so quite a few. All right. Okay, so I'll do my uh, I'll do my best to uh, hopefully give a reflection that may give some uh, information for folks that are new. And the new folks, why are you here? I know it was cold and a little rainy out there, and saw people coming in here. Can I just have one or two people that are that are first time? Uh, to this, why you came? No, shy. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> uh, did it have something to do with uh, personal, wanting to look at your own personal situation and find a way to maybe find a little more inner resources and happiness? Just raise your hand. One finger will do. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, before I begin, I want to just, the last time I was up here was um, on the celebration for uh, Larry Rosenberg, the founder of the center's 85th uh, birthday, which was uh, celebrated um, a month ago, basically December uh, 15th, I think, 16th, <laughs> that range. It was a couple days. And it was just amazing. Larry's been a close, a very close um, mentor, friend uh, of mine for many years, and I just saw him earlier today, so we had lunch together. It was on his 85th birthday. And how many folks have seen that video or the, the DVD on his, uh, his life? Just a couple people. So I don't know, you should be promoting that here. <laughs> so there's a wonderful DVD uh, about, it's a documentary on the life of Larry and, and the center as well. So I just feel very, um, very honored to, uh, to be able to be back, and, and it's what we do, the people that do this teaching, we are just trying to, the best of our ability, um, to take the seeds that we've gotten from our own experience through, through the help and guidance of our teachers. And it's been going along this way for a long, long time. <laughs> So if someone in my position is doing their job, we're not, it's not so much about, it's about really being able to practice what, we're, what, what our kind teachers have, have shown us about our ability to work with our own minds and hearts. And I say that as well because, Larry, we've taught together, we taught together for many, many years. Uh, and he always told me, uh, if, you can't use, if you can't use notes, you shouldn't be teaching. And I always use notes. And I sh still should have been teaching. It was okay. <laughs> it's just a style thing. So uh, I actually felt really happy today when I, I uh, was getting ready for the talk just to get quiet, which is what he always said. It's just, you just get quiet and, um, and then see what uh, kind of comes from that place and then speak from there. So um, that's what I, I try to do during the, the period before, during the sitting. And... Um, so what came to, to mind, which just came to mind then for the first time today, was to, was to speak on, and it's good for the new folks, hopefully, um, just an overview of a classic path of, of the Dharma, which is called the 
the Eightfold Path. Uh, and so I'll reflect on that. So it's a reflection, and I'll weave it, and, it's <clears throat> and you'll just see how it brings out um, developmentally a lot of the different pieces of what we, what we do and how the practice that we come for is, is framed. Uh, and then hopefully I can see, show you how the pieces work a little bit together. And these are pieces that are meant to be reflections for our own life. They're not, this is not meant to be some abstract thing. And then that will be a jumping-off place for, uh, for a discussion, okay? So how many people have heard of the Eightfold Path? Okay, so most people. And the first, I first heard about it when I was in college. <laughs> I went to college up the road. I went to Tufts, and uh, I studied uh, comparative, well, wasn't my major, but I, I, I worked with comparative religion. I remember reading about uh, early Buddhism and Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and this concept, this this eightfold path which was like it was all just a a kind of a list of you do this and then this happens and that happens it was all very nice and it was in my head and in my own experience after I finished college I actually went off uh, instead of doing what might have been expected of me and uh, hope for me which would be to go to graduate school and carry on with the expectations of my lineage I, my family lineage, I, um, I went off to Asia, went to a Zen monastery, and spent the better part of the next 10 years in, in Asia. I was a monk in Thailand. Uh, and there, I got to look at the Eightfold Path from a very different perspective. Because I was there, and I had done uh, three months, I had done a lot, of, a lot of intensive practice at the Insight Meditation Society, and in Japan and other places, and I went there, and I got the same words that I had gotten in college. I heard talks on the Eightfold Path, but it had a very, very, very different ring to it because I was immersed in the practice at that point. And now, fast forward another 25 years or so, there's another flavor to it because since coming back, uh, I slowly got integrated in modern society with responsibility, uh, family responsibilities, and you know, relationship, family. Uh, as you heard, I'm a founder of a center in West Newbury, Mass., which has been going for Larry and I. Um, and the patron of the center founded it about 13 years ago. So, um, you know, making sure that overseeing that organization and being the primary teacher, uh, as well as a lot of other things, owning a house. And now I'm in the middle of a divorce. My God, it's the whole thing. I did, I, I still, I'm very good friends with my soon-to-be ex-wife, and we have a good relationship, and I have a stepson. <laughs> uh, but now, so this is life, right? You don't have to get divorced, it's fine. <laughs> but now, as I look at these teachings again, they have a different, I have a different relationship to them which is, it's not, it's not theory of looking at a textbook. It's not being a monk and doing very intensive meditation in Asia. It's being a, a committed meditator with a fair amount of uh, duties and responsibilities and relationships in the world here and now in this setting. So 
the Eightfold Path has relevance as a, as a text, as an ancient thing we look at with our brain. It has a relevance for deep meditation. And it very much has relevance for daily life, for living in daily life where we use meditation, but we're not doing really, really intensive meditation a lot of the time. Okay? So what is the path? Well, it centers on the Buddha's fundamental... And this is coming from, this is an insight meditation center. It's coming from the fundamental insight of the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, which is, now I'm going to sound like the textbook, <laughs> 2,600 years ago or so, that uh, the human condition, when not looked at carefully, when just looked at through kind of the eyes of survival and... Um, conditioning has limitations and has, is fraught with suffering, some of which can be seen through if we train our hearts and minds in a pretty deep way and in a way where we can potentially touch both resources that help us to live but also to see into the fundamental nature of experience in the world and our hearts and minds that is deeply enriching and even liberating. So he described this in the Four Noble Truths, which is the, the frame of the, the Eightfold Path. It's the beginning. It's the, the um, it says there's, there's suffering. There's normal suffering, and then there's kind of what we might call a little more optional suffering. You stub your toe, it hurts. Right? When you... Uh, have a, a, a separation that's difficult, you lose a friend, someone dies, uh, that hurts too, emotionally. These are kinds of suffering. Our bodies don't cooperate the way we'd like them to. You noticed? Oh, just me. Okay. Uh, we get sick, etc. So there's physical things and there's normal human things, which are just part of life, and as are all the great joys of life. They're just natural. But there's a way that we relate to them, which is the second noble truth, that can cause, and it's called noble in the sense that when we study and look at and see clearly into this phenomena, it can transform our relationship to living. That's why they're considered noble or uh, worthy of examination. It's not that they're just, I don't, I don't think suffering is you know, great. Why do you call that noble? You know? because it can be a gateway into something much richer if we live with it from a different perspective. And the second is this level, there's a level of reactivity and of um, conditioning. It's expressed very beautifully in uh, a teaching called The Two Arrows, where someone's on a battlefield, this is like our life, and they get shot by an arrow, and they're bleeding. And they really need to, and they have some friends that are over a knoll, a grassy knoll, but they can't, they can't see their friend who's been shot, and he can't see them, but he knows they're there. Uh, and he needs to get help. He needs to figure out how to pull it out himself, or he needs to call for his friends and get it. He needs medical attention, or he's going he's to bleed to death, potentially. So what does he do? Does he call for help? Does he look at it and see if he can work on it himself? No. He sits there wallowing as he's suffering, and he starts blaming who did that to me? How dare they? And then he blames himself. How could I be so stupid to expose myself to this arrow? 
And this is what's called, not the first arrow of suffering, so the other things I was speaking of are the first arrow, uh, but the second arrow, which is his inner reactivity, his inner sense of not knowing how to be skillful with a given situation, given all the conditions that are there. Do we find ourselves beating ourselves up or shooting a second arrow when someone cuts us off in traffic and we have a little urge of a little pang of like, hey, that, that didn't feel good? Or do we find ourselves driving 80 miles an hour behind them? No, probably not that, but <laughs> find our blood pressure coming up, our stress responses, fight or flight response, we're getting angry, we might be cussing. Okay, so that's one example. Or someone looks at you a way that you interpret as being not nice, and you make up a whole story. Or someone says something that is not nice, and you make up a whole story and you carry it with you. Someone wrongs you in some way. Or someone doesn't meet your needs. And it's not dealing with the situation. Sometimes in a relational, maybe we could just get clarity with somebody if we're not sure. But we often don't do that. Or sometimes we can't. We can't actually control the conditions. But we spend an awful lot of time reacting internally and creating stories and images and unpleasant sensations. And they spin around and around and around. So that's the second arrow, but it's also the third arrow and the fourth arrow and the fifth arrow. We can, do you have arrows that are still, you're still shooting yourself with? Or others, you can blame yourself and others, that are 10 years ago something happened. And it's actually not helping the situation. If, it, if it's helpful, right? If it's helping to remove the first arrow, good. But then it's not necessarily unwise. So it's not, it's not saying we shouldn't think about things. But is it, is it actually helping to create healing? Often, uh, in the human condition, it's not. So this is, and this is based on, the second noble truth is what's called tanha, which is, it's, it's classically called craving or clinging. But uh, the way I like to see it, and this is from my own experience, and it's represented this way a lot of the time, is that it's craving to pull things we want towards us and to get rid of things we don't want. It's an energy that doesn't, and doesn't see things clearly. So it's conditioned responses, it's reactivity on mental levels, emotional levels, and that translates into action, thoughts, and speech, and physical actions. Look at the world. A lot, a lot of the suffering in the world, if we examine it, probably has to do with unwise clinging, aversion, wanting, not seeing situations clearly. Because we, we, many people with, with different ideologies all have what they think is something that's going to be good for everybody, right? In their own mind. Then why does the world, why do we have all these levels of unnecessary suffering? Because there's not a lot of clarity and there's actually, there's a lot of reactivity from conditioning. And a lot of, it, a lot of it's just very deeply ingrained. So this is, this is the cause of the second era. This is cause of what's called unnecessary suffering. And what's different, what the Buddha, why he's considered a genius and probably why we're sitting here, is that he actually had strategies that we could do to work with this. Rather than just saying, oh, this is humans. Okay, it's just a mess. <laughs> we don't learn from history and we're just going to keep doing this. Which seems like what we do a lot. Right? as well as all the incredible, wonderful progress that we make as human beings because of the creativity of, of our minds and hearts and responsiveness. So that's just one part of the picture. 
So how do we, but how do we, how do we work with this? How do we work with this second arrow? So this is what's, so if you go into a doctor and you have a disease and you say, and this is like, you have to come in and say, hey, my mind and my heart, this is what the Buddha was saying, our minds and our hearts on some level are a little bit sick. They're not that healthy. Because look at the actions that are coming out of them versus what's possible, given the sense that a lot of people would like to see uh, the world in a better place. It's coming out of this. What, what's, the, what's the, this craving, this tana? Is there, you come in, is there, is there, is there a way, or you just come in, you, you have a cut, and, and it's infected, and you come in, and you see the doctor, and the doctor says, we can fix it, I can fix it, if you take the medicine. If you, if you don't fix this wound, you might get gangrene and die. It used to happen. We're laughing, but it used to happen, Right? And it still does in certain situations where the climatic conditions are such that it will get infected. And if you don't have antibiotics and anesthetics and all, all the things that you need, proper clean bandages, you can get, or you have an amputation or something, right? So it, it's possible. So the Buddha says, when you come in with your sickness, your kai says, I can heal you. Or you can be healed. Your natural process of healing can take place and as, as long as you do these steps. So the third of the noble truths is there's a possibility of freedom. And it's actually no, it's not, it has nothing to do with Buddhism or the Buddha or anyone else. It's a natural human capacity to be free, that our hearts and minds can actually be free as we're living our lives. And I think we taste this at times. We taste times when we're just very connected and free and non-reactive. And the things that come out of our hearts and minds are generally much more responsive than reactivity based on old patterns and conditionings. Or how many people, uh, how many people get up when you see the sun? Because it's kind of that time of year where some people see the sun. Anybody, anybody see the sun? So I live on a reservoir up in West Newbury. I live out in the boondocks, about 50 minutes away. And uh, my house is situated where I can look down on a reservoir and I see the sun a lot of mornings when I get up. And often, when I get up, if I'm, if I'm, once I get a little of the cobwebs out of my mind and I look out, I have moments where I'm just, I just feel alive and present and just little bits of little, it just a little bit of free. Just not caught in it, just not bound up. There's no first arrow, there's no second arrow. So the Buddha points, and this is a metaphor in a way, the Buddha points to a deep potential that we have to be radically free, that it's in the nature, and even describe it sometimes like the nature of the mind, the heart is radiant. It's open, it's free. Which is really good news if you go into a doctor, they say you can be cured. But then how do you get there? Right? How do you get the optimal health in your leg, if you're using that example of a cut? Well, you have, to, you have to take the medicine, you have to do these steps. And that's the fourth of the noble truths, which is the Eightfold Path. So it's divided into three parts. And so we have to apply this to our life as we're seeing it. So that's the four, the four noble truths. And then, okay, how do we apply this? How do I do this? Well, how many people think that insight meditation is all about, and the whole path is about being present? Oh, you're well-educated. That's a big part of it, isn't it? To be present? Yes, okay, a little nods. <laughs> Good, we'll get there. It's part of the Eightfold Path. It's a very important part of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> Mindfulness. 
Uh, but it's in a frame. And that's what's very important from the point of view of, 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 this, of the frame that the Buddha taught. And so the, the Eightfold Path is the first part. It has three parts. The first part is to orient our view and our thoughts is a particular frame. And then the second part is working with our actions in the world, okay, of, of, of uh, body spe- of speech and uh, body and our, our work actions. And the last part is dealing with the direct cultivation of our minds and our hearts through effort and mindfulness and, um, and concentration. So that's like, so there's the, now we go back to the textbook, right? It sounds like a, that, 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 that. So as I talk about it, I'll lay it out in a little bit, but you'll see, and this is why I think it's very applicable and how it is for my own life now, how we see how these different parts are actually facets of our own life. They're facets of our formal practice life. They're facets of our communication with our partner, our spouse, our, our colleagues. They're facets of how we apply uh, effort in our work. They're facets of how we very much orient, and this is where it begins, the quality of intention in our mind. So this is the first part. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the mental orient or the mental and emotional orientation. And it's interesting in, this, in, the, in the ancient tradition, this comes from the mind and the heart. Are, they're both covered by the word what's called chitta, which is, it means mind and heart. It means they're one. So there's not, it's not just thinking and feeling. But, and it's, 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 the, it's, it's our thinking process, it's our feeling, and it's also awareness. So it's a kind of a big, so just opening up into that level of it, okay? So it's not just rational, it's not just feeling, right? Emotional feeling, or it's not just awareness. It's all, of, it's that whole basket, okay? So the first important thing is to understand so right view is the first. It goes right view and right thought. View is understanding that's, not, uh, that's oriented in a certain way. And we could probably give a whole series of talks on what this might, just, might be. But in one level, it's simply to, to see that suffering exists, that our inner reactivity so it's, it's based on self-knowledge. That's, this is why this isn't a textbook process. This is a, looking at our own life. To see that in our relationships to living, a lot of what happens is based on our unexamined levels of reactivity. So it's saying you actually acknowledge that suffering exists and that some of suffering is fundamentally workable and that I can actually work with my mind and heart. So it immediately it's saying everything is out there. How much time do we spend thinking if only they were different? Then I would be happy. If the political situation was different, would you be happier? Would you be happy? Would you have lasting happiness? Would you have unending happiness? <laughs> Would you have dependable happiness? You might be looking in the wrong realm. That's just an opinion, if you want dependable happiness. Depend over time, if you just look at history in that realm. But 
the Buddha's pointing to there is a place, and that's what the third noble truth is, we can find happiness that is more dependable than what we ordinarily think of. And we get deluded by thinking that when, if we can just shape the outer world, if it can conform to our ideal, then we will be happy. And that's considered a basic fundamental flaw in how we see. It doesn't mean that we don't create change and we don't work with the conditions as skillfully as we can. But the, the, the Four Noble Twos are saying there is suffering and there's this second arrow. And guess what? Through our unexamined life, we're creating a lot of it. And we're actually creating the conditions where we keep perpetuating if our actions have consequences outwardly and everyone else's do. We're keeping things stirred up. We're keeping the, the, boiling, the pot boiling, as it were, through, through this. So it's saying if there's suffering and we can work with the causes of it, but we have to actually see where a lot of causes lie. Where, where happiness lies. It's not, that, it's not that, that, you know, if they had all these bike lanes in Cambridge and they had an extra lane for driving, it wouldn't be better. <laughs> right? And there was enough parking. That's not saying, it's not saying that. But it's saying these are the conditions. And rather than trying to find happiness and projecting an ideal, how, what can I work on what's right here? Can I, find it right, can I find a more dependable place right here? So suffering exists. The cause of unnecessary suffering is in our inner reactivity, and it's workable. That's really good news. But the view is you gotta, we have to orient ourselves a little that way. And if we don't do that, we, can't, it, it, we, we will not transform. Does that, does that, does that make sense? Like in our relationships, if we, don't, if we don't really actually own our own stuff, and not in a way that we're wrong, but in a way that we actually start to work with them. We start to give space, and that's what a lot of that, as we'll get in the later parts of the, mind, of the mindfulness, the meditative aspect, we, have, we start to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with this. This is workable, but I've got to see where to work. I can't just live through ideals and then fight for those ideals and then suffer when I have inner reactivity. That's not going to get me there. So that's a fundamental shift. And then part of that, at, a, at a, a deeper wisdom level, when we see right view, it's seeing that actually the nature of everything in the world is a little bit more, and the first, what, first thing I said leads to this, it's part of this, is less governable than we would like it to be. But, I mean, does everyone know the great rule of change? That things change? <laughs> The great law, the wonderful Thai teacher Ajahn Chah said, you know, that, that uh, the, uh, the, the, the ruler of the universe, she or he, or I, I bet it's actually not gender specific. It's not. <laughs> uh, is change. That's the ruling force of the entire universe, all universes. That's the ruling. And that's great news. But nobody wants to hear it, so we suffer. <laughs> Why is it great news? Because it's actually true. <laughs> but our hearts that want to fix get fixated, attached, tanha, right? Grasping. They can't, it's very hard to align them, to align ourselves with that truth. The flow of life, the, the ability, letting go, right? That ability. 
And if we're, just, if we're locked into our kind of biological urges and uh, programming to procreate and to create safety and to create small uh, nets of separation that we protect, tribalism, etc., then we, we're bound in this. We get bound in it. And it feels good. We're, always, we're striving for security. It feels good, but it is limited. And it is in contrast to this changing ungovernability of experience. It's at, at, at odds with that. In a certain way, we're not pro, I would say, we're not programmed for peace. It's, I, don't, I don't know if it's in our best, biological, biology's best interest for us to seek to be deeply, deeply free in the way where we let go, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but maybe some of this is very hardwired, and so we just go back into this as default modes, into small circles of grasping and protection. Okay? That makes sense, doesn't it? I feel it all the time. And I'm like, hey, this is all nice impermanence and owning your stuff. But, but the urge, the, the, the drive is very, very strong and deep. And it's interesting to see how, uh, I wouldn't just say pernicious, I would just say strong. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a it's very powerful life force. So this is basically saying, and the Buddha's teachings are characterized as, as going against the stream. The stream of just believing in these impulses and creating separation through them. So seeing, seeing change, seeing the lawfulness of change and starting to, to work with it, to accept it, is part, of the, is part of what we have to do. We have to see, we have to see into this. Okay? And we have, to do, we have to do this by stepping out of, by stepping out of our normal ways of thinking. When you practice mindfulness, so this, this is going forward, but when you, when you watch your breath for a moment, and you feel calm, have you stepped out of it? Have you stepped out of all the busyness and all the separation? Just for a little bit. And then you can see a little more clearly. So, the four, so when we start, to, the right view is to be able to see into the nature of experience, to orient ourselves in this way, and to, to say, I'm going to work with my heart to do this. And what we see, and this is another basic orientation of view, and this can turn into intention, which you'll see it translates into all the other facets, or other facets is that we, we see that a lot of our reactivity causes harm for ourselves and others. And there becomes an orientation that, of non-harming, naturally. Because we see, into, we see into the nature of life. We see that things want to live, that they want to be happy. And we start to see more that our happiness is not dependent on someone else's unhappiness some other. And so there's a natural respect that starts to arise. So you often see as a hallmark of intentionality is kindness, of clarity and kindness. And so we, you can orient yourself in this way. So it's an orientation which is mental in the beginning. It's, it's, it's intentional of non-harming, of, of going with flow, of learning to, to step out and to see more clearly. Okay? And then the second one is, thought, is the thoughts that help us to get there. The actual, well, how, do I, how would I think differently about this situation? What, what, how would I guide myself differently to move in this direction against the stream of just habitual reactivity and going along with this conditioning? It's relentless. How would I do that? To find out for ourselves. But it's orienting ourselves through intention, 
through thought, and through working skillfully with our thoughts. So reframing. How many people know about loving-kindness practice? That's that's like a skillful reframing. When you get angry at somebody, which you know is causing harm and a cause of tribalism on the level I was speaking of it, right? Then you actually start to work with thoughts that shift the dynamic. And then you also think, oh, well, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll go to a Wednesday night talk instead of going to Riles. Is that still there? (laughs) Actually, Riles is fine. I don't have anything against Riles. (laughs) No, because I want to learn about this because I see, (laughs) I see there's, how late is it? Up? No, just kidding. Because <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I know it's I know it's open late. <laughs> I think actually, Larry, going back to Larry Rosemary, I think that he lived above Riles. Did he live? Above, I think he lived above Riles a long time ago. Just a story. Okay, never mind. could be wrong. You can take that out when you edit. <laughs> so we start to think in a ways that maybe we shift. We try something new. We orient ourselves. We. And as we become alert and aware, we start to look into life in a way that's a little bit more reciprocal and a little more sensitive. And that's a natural, and you'll see as we go through, and you can make these associations for yourself, that the different aspects feed each other. They're very interdependent. If I would title the talk, it would probably be The Eightfold Path and Interdependent View or something. Because they're, they weave. It's just, it's not this linear. Experientially, they weave completely. So then that's the first. That's, like a, that's an orientation of view and thought. And then the second aspect is just bringing this, the sense of, of seeing clearly and also working with the principles of, of non-harming, okay, into our life in three very simple ways. Simple, so it's called right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And right meaning oriented towards freedom, Okay. Towards that, the touching this, this greater peace in the mind and the heart and acting from that place. Because when you touch freedom in the moment, in your own experience, what comes out of that? When you're not grasping and clinging, you're not caught in ideals. It doesn't mean you're passive, but you're just caught in being with, you're, you're not caught. You're seeing things as they are, and your mind, your heart are fundamentally more open. What comes out of that in your own experience? Joy? What else? Peace or Okay, is there, how do you act towards others? Do you? Yeah? Is that your experience? Good, because I'm at like, so it's not textbook, right? Good. If you do, you find yourself acting more, because that's probably where you're sitting here, too, because we're reinforcing these, right? So kindness, generosity. Anybody else? When you're still and clear and open and free in your heart, those are good. Those are good. So, that's one way. That comes from seeing clearly, right? And as we'll see, the, the first two aspects, which are kind of intentional and mental and emotional, it's orientation in a certain way, um, they become affirmed in experience. Right? So that's an affirmation in experience. So, that's, so that would express in speech, it would be kind speech. It would, might be, you might have to say something tough, but you would do it in as skillful way as you could, like in work situations or family situations with boundaries, et cetera, right? Is that correct? There's more of a, there'd be more kindness and appropriateness of time. Yeah, you know, sometimes when, we don't, when we're in caught in reactive cycles and we're gonna speak, we just speak it. And the same thing would have landed well in another situation, but we can't hold back <laughs> because we don't see the impulse. And then it, whoosh. yes? I think so. 
So these are examples of what would be kind of unwise speech. So what, this, what these aspects do is they flip it and they say, well, how do we create the conditions? Like, what are the expressions of and how do we create the conditions for this freedom of heart and mind? So they're working from the... The question that people respond to is working from the inside out. This is working from the outside in. And it can sound moralistic or religious or this or that, but um, as we see, it's actually, it's coming from the place of wisdom. And sometimes we do need guidelines to be helpful. So right speech or wise speech is non-harming speech. It's, it's accurate speech, so it means not lying. And it's said in some of the tales of, like the, the Buddha, these are, um, myths or whatever, I don't know, that the Buddha had all these past lives. They're, they're mythical things, but they, they're, serve, they're teaching. They, they serve teaching purposes. That all the lives, the Buddha was this and that, and he did all these bad deeds and good deeds and stuff, but he never lied. It doesn't mean he spoke his mind all the time. Because <laughs> it's, very in- it's just interesting, since he vowed to become a Buddha in the past. So for me, that's just a powerful metaphor that it's very, that lying which is we do all the time, <laughs> in little ways or big ways, right? To suit our purpose. I'm not saying ever, I'm not saying you personally. <laughs> I got this like, <laughs> I'm saying that it's a part of, it's a, it's a common exchange of speech, right? It's a common, white lies, not so white lies, okay? So that it's very important not to do this. Why? Because, and it doesn't mean you just speak your mind. It doesn't mean you harm people with your speech. Sometimes you don't say anything, okay? Because it creates harmony. When you can trust somebody and, and, and you believe what they say, and they believe what you say, you have some relationships like that probably. That's pretty, it, re, it relaxes our whole biology, doesn't it? Our whole neurology, it, it just, we get in a place of more trust and ease. So working with speech. So this is something we can cultivate and we can work with. And of course, we use later aspects of the path to do it, to remember to do it, and to, have, to be able to see into when we have the impulse not to do it. So speech, and that's the hardest one. And once I gave a talk on what are different, working with different ways of being in the world that's harmonious at the Insight Meditation Society, and I, was do, and I forgot to talk about speech. I let, there's five of them. I just left it out. <laughs> Not because I'm terrible, but because it's just, it's just really hard. So <laughs> it's really hard to, to, to form a healthy relationship with this one and to work with it. But satisfy, and I, I know for myself when, when, when I'm in there with it and trying to express it and work with it, in certain relationships, it's very, it adds a whole different dimension. So, um, so that's that one. And then the next is action, which is just general actions of non-harming. And it's really simple. When you don't hurt somebody verbally or physically, and when you don't steal, when people we can trust in that way with each other, uh, in our families, when, we're, when our speech, when our action is actually not harmful, verbal and physical, what happens? Same thing. There's more harmony, isn't there? So these are all oriented towards creating harmony. And the last one is working with uh, livelihood, which is just working in our work. And this is interesting because uh, it, if you read the early teachings, it says don't um, be an arms dealer and uh, don't, don't be a butcher and things like this. 
Okay, it, it talks about very clearly harming, killing. So it's based on non-intentional harming of life. Okay, but then situationally, um, what I've seen and I heard of one great uh, Thai master in the northeast of Thailand, um, who was a fisher, a fisherman came up and said, "I want to. I've heard your talks, and I want to quit being. Uh, I want to quit fishing." And the story goes that he, he questioned the man, and he said, well, what's your life situation? Can you do that? He said, well, I have a wife and two kids. They said, okay, do you have any other skills? He said, absolutely not. <laughs> and this was not, this is in a part of Thailand which does not have a lot of uh, employment opportunities. <laughs> and the, I guess the advice was, don't, don't stop doing your job now, because you'll actually cause more, more harm in the short term than you would because of the situation that you're in in life with your children and your wife, et cetera. So that working, and then other, other one teacher I had um, at the Insight Meditation Society early on, he, he used to work with uh, executives in a, in a, in a, in a, a very, uh, what's called a, you know, not, not a good uh, company in a lot of ways ethically, at least at that time, and I don't, I haven't followed him that closely, but Monsanto. For, and, uh, he worked with an executive that worked from the inside and tried to create change from the inside of the company, just to, cre- to create some mindfulness pockets within it and to you know, spread goodwill and to try to, to, try to create a, a, an alternate culture within it. And last I heard, it didn't work, and he left. <laughs> so I'm just telling you these are examples. <laughs> so the orientation towards harmony in action, speech, actions in general, and then in our relationship to our livelihood as best we can, okay? And then the last, which is why we come here often, is the meditative piece, the last of the three. They're called, there's actually three aspects. They're called uh, ethics, uh, just, you know, or harmony, and then concentration, or the meditative aspect, which we'll talk about now, and then wisdom, which was the first aspect, the orientation, okay, of the mind and the heart, and how, how we see. So this part is very simply, it has to do with three parts. And as you listen, see how you relate these in your life, not just to your meditation, but in your life, and in working with these other principles too. So the first one is effort. How important is it in our lives and in our meditation practice to work with the quality of our effort? And it's very interesting that this is, this is a whole one of the eight, it's one of the eight, you know, kind of spoked wheels. It's, you, you've seen the uh, flag of India? It has eight spokes. It's from this. It's, from the, it's called the eight spokes. It's from the, it's the Dharma wheel. It's called the Dharma wheel. And you see them, the eight, the eight spokes. So these are the eight spokes. So effort is one spoke. It's a whole spoke. Why is that? How important, when you practice, when you sit down and meditate, how important is the quality of your effort? When you strive too hard, what happens? I don't know. You get tight when you don't put enough effort in, when you forget what you're doing. What happens? You lose track. You lose your mindfulness. You lose your, you lose your steadiness. So the Buddha spoke of it in two, and at work. What happens when you have a lot of work to do? <laughs> and you try really hard, and then you get burned out. It doesn't work good in the long run, right? Or if you, so, so effort is something that's very important. And even as I'm speaking, I can be, ah, 
I can be really like this. Yeah, man. Like, oh, I should finish up now. I can be like that. Or I can try to stay steady and balanced and in an attunement. So that's how he likened it. It's like a strings of an instrument where you try to tune the effort. And the other part of effort is that, and this is the kind of radical part, is we keep remembering what our orientation is. And this mindfulness helps us with this too. But if we're working with it, orientation in life, we keep, we keep the effort to keep that in mind. Okay? Anything. It's like learning to, learning to keep that effort. So that's, and when we practice formally, the meditative aspect, and then meditation in daily life, daily life practice, this is very important. So the second of the three is mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Is it just being present? A certain way, yeah. It's being present with things as they are, right? It's not judging ourselves or others or experience. When you see a sound or hear, oh, so you don't see a sound, excuse me. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> Actually, there are things, aren't there, at parties? Like the sounds, you can, the sounds alter the lights, so you can see a sound. Okay, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> so what you see or hear or smell or taste or touch or even think, it's just as it is. It's, just, it's a naturally arising experience, and we can tune ourselves. So we learn to do that in selective ways to train the next aspect, which is the ability to calm the heart and the mind, right? which is focus. We train our ability by learning to not impose, and this is directly working with our conditioning. We see what conditioning is, and we don't react because we see things as they are. And we do this in a way that's selective to start. That's called calming and steadying. So we do it with the breath, with a footstep, with a sip of tea. And then over time, as it grows, our capacity to be present grows. Little by little, we can, or, or it can happen just naturally. It can happen even with a thought or a mood or an emotion. We're mindful, we're present, and so we're not reacting, but we're actually seeing it as it is. That's where transformation happens, isn't it? Something that you've been, some emotion that was tough that you keep thinking about and hashing over the arrows, it arises, but you're in a calm place. You've been watching your breath or you're just, you're steady, you're present, mindfulness is strong, and you see it. And what does it show? It shows that it's actually, well, the first of the, it's, it shows what it is when we have right view. It shows that it changes. It expresses the the truth of non-clinging, because mindfulness is strong. So that's one aspect of mindfulness. And this is instead of all the factors that we develop in our meditative practice, you can't have too much mindfulness. Now, I think it's just so beautiful. You, you, you can't be too present. Of course, if you try, there's too much effort, then you're not present. You're somewhere else. You're over-efforting. Or, but, so, and that's, so that's an invitation to get to know the mind and the heart that are clear that are seeing things as they are. Whatever's arising, they're seeing it, okay? And the second part of mindfulness is learning to remember. Learning to remember to come back to what our anchors are, et cetera, if we're working with the breath or whatever it might be, if we're working with metta, the phrases. It also, see how it weaves in with, it, it, it's, the re, it's the remembrance to come back to our original intention. 
how do I create non-harming in this situation? Or the Buddha had a conversation with his son, Raula, and the, the, his son said, how do I know how to act? And he said, well, reflect beforehand. Do you think it's going to be harmful? Actually, he said, do you think it's going to be helpful for yourself and others or not, or not harmful? And he said, if you find that it's, like the best case is good for you and others, and then you kind of take it down from there. So you go like, good for one and not bad for the other, not bad for both. And then, it, you know, when we get in bad situations, like who gets harmed less, right? So he said, reflect. So remember to reflect. Use mindfulness to reflect. So you're reflecting on what's speech, right? Your orientation, the right view, and your, or your re, the reaction, the reflection is on speech and action. How do I do my best? And it's not in conflict with our thoughts or our memories, or it's using whatever knowledge we have and using the present moment. So we remember, okay? And we do our best, and then he said, actually, check in while you're doing it. So using mindfulness of being present along the way and then make alterations if you need to. Or if it works out good, then reinforce the habit. Okay? So see how, mindful, see how mindfulness is working as a remembrance and also as present moment and it's tying in with the other factors? So it's, I think it's quite beautiful. It's very, it's, so this is very real life. You know what I mean? This isn't, this isn't a textbook anymore, is it? Unless your life is the textbook and your relationships. If your life is the book we're studying in my life, then we're okay. <laughs> is that too deep? I don't think so. <laughs> and then the final one, I'll finish up here. The final one is um, the, the last of the Eightfold Path is what's called uh, the aspect of concentration or steadiness. And what this does, when you're very focused and it's in balance, so see how these three aspects work together? Effort, mindfulness, and focus. So when you come back and do something again and again and again, if you come back to the breath and sitting again and again and again, or you're, I don't know, practicing a tennis stroke. I used to play tennis, and you practice again and again and again. After a while, maybe it might take a long time, you get more absorbed in it, right? It becomes more natural, and you're focused, and other things go away. Or in work, we come back to a task, and then once we have, you know, there's stages of, competency and mastery. A lot of this has to do with wise effort. These are just worldly you know, applications. Wise effort, mindfulness for the situation, and then focus. And that, that, when that builds, and how many people have tasted that with your breath a little bit sometimes, or another object, where you get, you get calm, you get focused. How's it feel? Feels good, doesn't it? Or feels good at work? Feels good if you're, an, if you're a runner and you get to a certain point. It's so repetitive, it's so in flow, that there's a surrendering of a certain quality of mind and heart, and there's, a, there's an attunement, and there's a steadiness, and the fruits of that are calm. And when that becomes ripe, then what happens to the quality of our seeing? It's very sharp. It's steady, the mind is heart, and because we're seeing mindfully, we're seeing into the nature, which is it actually, you start to see into what was with the idea of impermanence and letting go and unwise clean. You start to see into that as actual experience. And, you, and it's, it's just really natural. You just see, it's called seeing clearly. Vipassana means to see in a special way that uproots all that's extra. We see into the nature of something. It's, it's exquisitely, 
I don't, wanna, I don't know if I should say beautiful. Maybe that's the wrong Buddhist word. <laughs> but when you see into the nature of experience very deeply, because there's focus, there's mindfulness, there's the quality of balanced effort, there's continuity, then what happens? There's this deep sense of letting go, of letting be, of seeing into, in a way, the miracle of life and the ungovernability. These are words in a way where we let go and we're free. And we see into the nature of things, and we also see into the nature of our hearts and minds, which is this potential for something that is more vast and free. And so then that's where all the kind of trainings, formal training, they come from this place. Right? And even in the beginning, I'm going I'm to ring the bell on myself, okay? But uh, <laughs> so in the beginning, <laughs> I will. In the beginning, <laughs> It said that when the Buddha started teaching, they had all these rules, which are like, these are like, there's kind of three ethical rules, but when the monks, they formed a order of monks and then nuns, um, all these rules came up. But in the beginning, there weren't rules. They only came out of harmful behavior. So I love that. It's just beautiful because it puts the, you know, it, it puts the horse before the cart. It says that wisdom is where all of these expressions of what are the Eightfold Path, it comes from that place. And then they're meant to support it. And it's really, it's a really interdependent flow of experience. So you can take any piece. You can look at your speech, your action in any situation, you're on the cushion with another person, and you can see how these different factors are playing, how they're working. And are we, are we moving, are we orienting ourselves in a place of freedom, connection, responsiveness, or not? And then how do we work with these tools that uh, we're given uh, to, to, to enhance, to be clear, and to enhance the, how we want to live? That's it. Let's sit for a minute. May the fruits of our practice in all of its forms for this evening looking into what we described as this classic training of the Eightfold Path which is really a path to lead us more deeply into our lives, clarity, perhaps some kindness and wisdom. May the fruits of our practice truly be a benefit to ourselves, to those in our lives, and in the interdependent web of life that we all inhabit to all beings everywhere. May we and all beings be safe, be happy, and be free. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.